Welcome to Small Talk, a podcast hosted by Boston Children's Hospital nurses, where we explore the BCH community through conversation. I'm Denise Downey, the Nursing Professional Development Specialist from the ER, and joining me are my two co-hosting colleagues. Hey, I'm Teresa Shannon. I'm the Nurse Unit Education Coordinator on Nine East, an inpatient unit. I am Kate Dunham. I'm the Clinical Director of Innovation for Inpatient Medicine Programs. Today, we are talking with our colleagues, Sarah and Erin, from the Critical Care Transport Team. So we'll take a moment and let them introduce themselves. Sure, happily. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here. Uh, So my name is Sarah Smith-McElvin. I actually started as a new graduate nurse way back in the emergency department. And fortunately, I was able to meet Denise there. Uh, So I started at Boston Children's back 18 years ago. And I have been on the critical care transport team for the last 15 years. So all of my entire nursing career has been at Boston Children's. My name is Erin Duffesey. I am an EMT and communication specialist with our critical care transport team. And I've been with the team for three years now. Thank you guys for joining us today. We have a lot of questions for you because I'm sure our listeners also want to learn about your work on the transport team. Can you tell us about the team itself? We're quite a small team, but we are interdisciplinary and uh, multidisciplinary, I should say. So the backbone really started as as nurses, right? So the backbone of the team was really began as nurses, and it started way back in 1997. And uh, what we had was two nurses that would go out with a vendor ambulance service that we contracted with to retrieve critically ill children in the community and then bring them back to Boston Children's. And since then, we have now grown to have our own ambulances and hire our own EMTs and paramedics, just like Aaron. So we have grown over time. And uh, as we speak, we're actually working to double the team from our existing cohort to double that so we can have you know just more teams and service to have a bigger service area. So you really started as a nurse-driven idea, right? Exactly. And it was some of the nurses in the medical surgical ICU that started the team back in 1997. Wow, that's amazing. We should be really proud of that. So where's the team located? I know people always ask, like, where do they live? We have a couple of different locations that we are located in, actually, around the hospital. We have one office that is up in what is now the Patient Flow and Capacity Center. And that is where our communication center is located. We also have a garage. I'd describe it as over near the shuttle loop. That's where we keep our ambulances and all of our equipment. And then we have another office that is hard to describe, kind of behind the cafeteria. (laughs) And that's where our backup communication center is and some of our administrative offices are located there as well. So you mentioned the communication center. Can you tell us how that's part of the team? So our communication center is staffed 24-7, 365. Um, There's always going to be someone in there to answer the phone. How it works is that referring physicians from anywhere that want to send a patient to Boston Children's will give us a call, um, whether it's to the emergency department or to one of our ICUs or the NICU. So we field all of those phone calls. We take emergency department expects. We get IC level patients connected to medical control physicians. We dispatch our transport team. We keep track of them while they're out on calls. And we are also responsible for um, sending out any trauma alerts, any stroke activations. And we take care of non-emergent discharges out of the hospital by ambulance as well. So we wear a lot of different hats in that room. We're pretty busy. 
That room is very busy. And I, I should say, I know I mentioned the, the, you know, starting out as a nurse team and then adding our paramedics and EMTs, but we also have our communication center specialists and they really do a significant amount of work behind the scenes. So they're really sort of the, the unsung hero behind the scenes. And a lot of our EMTs and paramedics like Aaron will spend time working in there as well. So that was my question. I was wondering who answers the phone? The EMTs and paramedics will split half of their shifts weekly. So half of their shifts will be um, in the comm center specialist role and the other half will be working on the ambulance. So the EMTs get to do both. Correct. Yep. And then we have some other um, employees who are just comm center specialists. So they'll only work exclusively in the communication center. That's quite an important job, I would say. Like you said, it's busy 24-7, right? Yes, very much so. Knowing that there's a lot of different people on your team, who do you guys report to? The entire group of us, so all communication center specialists, all EMTs, paramedics, as well as nurses, all report to Michael O'Melia as our clinical coordinator and Robert Shields as our nurse manager. And then we're overseen above that by Dr. Patricia Hickey. Honestly, I didn't imagine that it was such a big area and that you had three different offices throughout the hospital that are all doing different things. That's a bit about the transport team itself. I'm really interested, too, in your perspective. So each of you, why did you get interested in transport in the first place? That's such a good question. One thing is that, you know, in nursing school, you don't necessarily know about all of the available positions and jobs. You don't know about the many, many areas that you can go to as a nurse. So I don't even know that I knew that transport existed in nursing school. When I got my position as a new graduate in the ER at Boston Children's, I immediately knew that that was the environment I wanted to be in. Fast paced, not knowing what was going to happen next, having you know different patients at all times of the day, having to really work in a crisis mode as well. So it just happened after I had spent a few years down there that one of the uh, existing transport team members said, hey, you know, we're going to have a position open on the team. And this team, as we all know, aside from right now where we're doubling, these positions don't open up frequently. So they're sort of highly coveted positions that people don't leave this job. So when that position opened, I was just finishing up my nurse practitioner degree and I thought, well, which way should I go? And I thought, I can always be an NP later. I can always do that. I'm, I'm going to take this position because I don't think this will ever come around again. And I, I haven't looked back. And I know I'm in mixed company, but I always say I think it's the best nursing job there is. I'll say it every time. We always say it's the, it's the best nursing job there is. And it's it's that just the adrenaline. You never know where you're going to be. You never know where you're going to go. You never know what kind of patients you're going to see. It may be a, you know, a one-hour-old, 24-week gestation infant uh, in the morning. And in the afternoon, you're picking up a teenager with an asthma exacerbation. So you never know what it's going to be. And you have to be practicing at the height of your game and you have to have attention to detail and speak up for safety and sort of bring all of those pieces in to every call, every shift, every day. It's so much fun. It's so rewarding. Even though it's so fast paced and, you know, we're always on the go, we never know what's going to happen. We can actually spend time with our patients because we have to transport them from point A to point B. So, we, you know, we have one-on-one -on -one time with that family, that child alone potentially, or that child and family members as well. So it's really rewarding and I enjoy it so much. And I'm so glad that I found out that little niche 
So as you're talking about the high acuity, the sick patients, the on the go, the uncertainty, I'm wondering, how do you handle that stress? You know, it takes many, many years to get to the point where when the pager goes off, you don't get that little lump in your throat. I would say I finally, you know, reached the point after 15 years, I hope, uh, that I say, you know what, we, we can handle this. We know we know how to handle this. We have the training. We have the expertise. We can always phone a friend back at Children's. You know, we know what to do. We've, we have enough education. We have so many educational resources that we receive that we we really are prepared in going out. So you're never going out blind. It's just your own personal confidence. It takes a little bit of time to sort of get under your belt and and some repetitive, um, the repetitive nature of doing things a couple of times. Sarah, Erin, could you tell me a little bit about when you do get a call, who is in the truck, who goes out with you? So when we go out on a call, we have two of our critical care nurses with us at all times, and then either an EMT like myself or a paramedic. We're responsible for getting our nurses to and from the call. And if we were ever in a case where perhaps we had a, a nurse that were ill and didn't couldn't make it into work, or if we have a call where we have twins, we want to transport both, we can bring in one of our moonlighting physicians who can come in and help us out on a call as well. I want to backtrack just for a second, and Erin, I want to ask you the same question I asked Sarah. What was it about transport that interested you? I came from the world of 911 EMS, and um, I also, like Sarah, enjoy the never knowing what's coming next, and I like the element of surprise, I suppose you could say. And I actually worked for, as Sarah mentioned earlier, the vendor company that we work with. When I used to work for that company, I was sent to Children's to bring some of the nurses on a few calls. And I never would have known that the team existed if I didn't work for that company. And through doing a few calls with the transport team, they said, hey, do you think you might want to make it official? (laughs) Which was great. So I applied after I was asked to. So I was really, really excited about that. It's the best EMS job possible. It's great. My other favorite aspect of working for this team is coming from 911 EMS. You have a patient, you're with them for 15 minutes, you drop them off in the ED, never to be seen again. So through Children's, we're dropping patients off, we're able to go back up to the floor a little later and check in on them and see how they're doing, follow along with them and hear that perhaps they've been discharged home. Um, So it's really rewarding to be able to really follow a case through and have good outcomes and know good outcomes. And you want to know that you did a good job, right? Yeah, definitely. Sarah, you mentioned education and training. I'm curious, can both of you just touch on any special education or certifications that you might need in order to be a member of the team? Sure. So what we look for when people are coming in just as applicants, we look for them to have at least three more closer uh, to five years or so of some critical care experience. So most people will come to us with pediatric or neonatal critical care experience, whether it be the ICU, uh, whether it be the emergency department. That's typically where people are coming from. Occasionally, we'll have folks who come from an ICU or a critical care environment that's not pediatrics, but for the most part, they're coming from a pediatric critical care environment. So 
they have that backbone, they have that baseline knowledge of how to care for a critically ill child or a critically ill patient. And then we do on-the-job training where orientation typically lasts approximately six months, so anywhere from four to six months. And the reason that it's so long is we have to teach additional skills that are in addition to your standard nursing. So as we're going out into the field, again, I mentioned we're not taking a provider or a physician with us, so we need to be able to do some of those additional skills like place a breathing tube and intubate somebody or place a central line, that sort of thing. And when we go out, we really are all the things to that patient, meaning we are, we're the bedside nurse, we're also the medication nurse, we are the social worker, we're the respiratory therapist, we're the pharmacist, we're, you know, the child life specialist. We have to sort of do all of those things. So a lot of training goes into that. We spend an entire month often in the OR practicing airway skills, for example. And then we like to send all of the nurses around to the various ICUs, really, to, to get a lay of the land and, and see those patients up there, get some expertise in those areas, and also do some networking so you can be introduced to, you know, the, the rest of the folks that we're going to be seeing. So there's really a lot that goes into the training that has it last from four to six months, and it's all competency-based there are a lot of lectures going into it. You'll learn how to read chest x-rays and interpret labs even further and beyond the scope of what we might typically look at at the bedside. Because we'll have to figure out what exactly are we going to do based on these labs. Might we have to intervene and have to make those decisions as well? So that's quite an advanced practice position, I would say, from a nursing perspective. Agreed, it is. And we can sort of be a, a jack of all trades, a master of none in, in some ways, um, because we do span the gamut of taking care of those premature neonates all the way up through. Um, sometimes we will transport uh, adults. So if they're followed by uh, some of our programs with congenital disease, congenital heart disease being one, we will follow them all the way through that. So we really have to sort of span the gamut of, of knowledge base, um, et cetera. Assuming you need like PALS and ACLS. As well. Yes, exactly. So we have uh, standard BLS CPR, ACLS, PALS, as well as NRP. So we also have the neonatal resuscitation as well. That's incredible. I can't believe all that training that you just take for granted so many, you know, so often that you just go out on a call, but you're really drawing from all this education that you've had over the years, which is just incredible. Add to that, we have to rely on people like Erin to teach us how to be EMTs as well. So after you, you know, pass all of the nursing competencies, then you do have to sit for your EMT uh, certification as well. So that's in addition, and you have to learn all these additional skills. So that's when we have our, our EMT and paramedic folks really teach us the ropes of how to function as an EMT. Is that education model based on uh, national standards or is that a children's hospital? educational model. Yeah, so Erin could certainly speak to what the standards are for, for EMS in particular, but to operationalize it, to be on an ambulance, um, you should be trained as an EMT. And that way we can deliver various levels of care. So Erin is uh, an EMT and she can speak to this far more than I can. Operating at a basic life support level, paramedics operate at an advanced life support level. And a lot of things have to do with, you know, billing and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, and then we above that operate at a critical care level. Level. So we always want to have our nurses be EMT. Some of us have actually challenged the paramedic exams as well so that we always have the proper number of EMTs on the ambulance. 
We are accredited by another accrediting body for transport systems, and that is CAMES, the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems, and they help us guide orientation and what needs to be done in orientation. So we will look at uh, those standards when we're developing our orientation and certainly pull in what the ICUs at Children's train for as well. Erin, could you speak a little bit on the EMT side of things for training? So um, as an EMT on our team, we require, I believe it's three years of experience, preferably in a 911 system. And just a little background on being an EMT B, you have to take a national board certification exam, um, which is a written multiple choice exam, as well as a practical exam that's hands-on stations. Um, And it's just all basic life support. We have a few medications we're allowed to administer. And on the paramedic level, that's where you're allowed to do more. You can intubate, you can use a cardiac monitor. Um, There's way more medications that you can administer. Um, So that's just a bit of a more advanced practice of pre-hospital medicine. But as far as being an EMT on the team, just having your EMT certification and experience is what's required. I've been dying to ask the question, what's it like to work on a truck? It's a moving office. (laughs) It is. And after a snowy winter where the roads have been, you know, expanding and contracting and there's potholes everywhere, it's always an interesting day. (laughs) Like how much room is in there? Can both of you be standing by the patient at the same time? Yeah, we have a really large ambulance and and Erin has far more experience just in general life being (laughs) in ambulances uh, than I do. But Our ambulance is significantly larger than others. So if you think of a standard ambulance, they transport one patient. So there's a stretcher there, you know, seats on either side sometimes, sometimes just on one side and a seat at the the head of the patient, if you will, if you kind of think about the position that they are in the ambulance. In our ambulance, we can actually take two stretchers or two isolates or one stretcher and one isolate. So we have room for two uh, stretcher mechanisms in each of our vehicles just in the back. And then the front of the ambulance can seat four people. So they're quite large and much larger than the average ambulance. And that gives us the ability to house all of the equipment that we need to carry because we truly are a mobile ICU. We are an ICU on wheels. And it also allows us to bring family with us. So we can really truly bring family-centered care out into the community and then bring those families back with us. Erin, do you drive the ambulance? I do. Do you have to get a different license to drive it? Um, Nope, it doesn't require an additional license. But as part of our orientation, we do at least 30 hours worth of drive time. So we have to take an emergency vehicle operator course. And we research that every two years when we research our EMT license as well. So it's a fun day for everyone. We set up all the cones and all the nurses drive through them. And (laughs) we do it at one of our satellite locations in a, a big parking lot. Do you forget that when you're driving your personal vehicle that you can't drive that fast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't get this big ambulance going that quickly anyways. Fair enough. Are you part of the flight team as well? The EMTs do not fly, but Sarah can speak a little bit more on our agreement with Boston MedFlight. Yeah, so if a patient's condition and or the distance dictate that we should go by air, we will look into speaking with Boston MedFlight and using their services and working in conjunction with them. So they have rotor wing aircrafts, which are helicopters, as well as a fixed wing aircraft, with, which is a jet. So depending on the distance and the logistics and whatnot, 
We can either take the the rotor wing or the fixed wing, and we would travel with them as the neonatal and pediatric specialist. So that is sort of the capacity in which we would go with them. We do go with them far less than than we used to, as they have acquired more pediatric and neonatal training of their own within their own team. But there are certainly some cases where we will go as well. What's the range that you go in the children's hospital transport trucks? We will go three hours by ground in one direction. So we'll go out to Albany by ground. That's usually the furthest we'll go west. And then we'll go up into Maine. We'll go down into Connecticut. But anywhere that's within three miles in one direction is our ground radius. Three hours? It takes me three hours sometimes to get six miles. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. What's the furthest you've gone by MedFlight? I actually have not gone that that far with the MedFlight team. I've gone to Bangor uh, a couple of times, so that's four hours each way by ground. I have gone to New York City. Um, I've gone to a hospital in New Jersey. So those were all with MedFlight. But I've actually also accompanied a patient via commercial air to Egypt. So that's the furthest I have personally gone. We have also gone to Japan, Guatemala, um, and these have all been commercial flights where we are accompanying the family and the child as as the medical provider. Wow, that's quite a 12-hour shift. It is, yes. (laughs) That's amazing. I never knew that you went that far. We do that a lot less now that more companies have expanded and have the capabilities to to transport patients long distance, but we definitely have done have done that in the past. What happens if you get motion sickness? Does that ever happen? You talked about the potholes and the bumps in the roads. I would say if you chronically get motion sickness, it's probably not the job for you. But I would say there's probably not a person on the team who has said, I have never had motion sickness. You know, every now and then if it's a 90 degree day out and you've been so busy, you sort of skipped breakfast and then you realize, you know, hey, I probably should grab a a protein bar when we get back. That that ride was a little bit much, but... (laughs) I always try to do my best to okay. to make it a smooth ride for you guys in the back because I know you're working back there. But that's just like another element to being the person that's responsible for getting everyone there and back safely. Um, is just keeping in mind that sometimes your nurses are standing up doing interventions in the back and you need to just make sure it's a smooth ride for them. I can only imagine bouncing around and trying to intubate somebody or get a line in. We rarely travel lights or siren. It's 2% or less of the time. Um, so it's not like it's an erratic ride that you would see, you know, Boston EMS going, you know, 70 miles an hour down the Jamaica way to to get to a patient. For the most part, outside of needing to get to an operating room, we typically have all of the materials, the skills, the knowledge that we need with us in the vehicle to be able to care for that patient and manage them. So it's usually a very controlled go with the flow of traffic. If you have to sit in traffic for a little bit, it's fine because you can manage the patient for the ride. Sarah, you mentioned earlier about um, medical control physicians. I was just curious how that works for you all as far as making decisions and orders and such. Yeah, sure. So uh, we operate based under a set of protocols to begin with. So we have uh, 30-something odd protocols. You know, some are very general, uh, neonatal airway, uh, pediatric airway, et cetera, and then some that are more disease process specific, the neonate with seizures, the pediatric patient with seizures. So we have very clear protocols of sort of algorithms and, and how to proceed down those pathways similar to all of the inpatient CPGs, protocols, et cetera. So we have those, first of all, to begin with. 
And that way we can, you know, start those and proceed down those pathways without having to call back to to do a lot of talking. Um, otherwise, we'd be on the phone, you know, every step of the way trying to make decisions. So we operate under those. But yet with every call, we will call back to medical control. Uh, and most of the time it is to give them an update. We have a control of the situation. We know what we need to do. We're going to do X, Y, and Z, or we've already done a number of things, or we're going to continue on with other various things. And we're just calling back to give an update. Um, and sometimes we're calling back because we say we've we've done X, Y, and Z, and we're still not where we need to be. So can you weigh in on this? Can you speak to your attending, et cetera? So usually the medical control physicians are fellows. They're often more senior fellows uh, that have been, you know, are in their second or third year. Sometimes they are in their first year and they just have some, you know, close supervision from someone that's done it a couple of times. And they are from the various ICUs. So if we're picking up a newborn, it's from the neonatal ICU, a cardiac patient from the cardiac ICU. And anybody else really falls under the medical surgical ICU purview. So it's usually one of those three fellows who's supervised by their attending. Uh, that is our sort of phone a friend, our, our call back at home. And if Erin is in the communication center, she's the one that's connecting us to them. So if I'm on scene at a local hospital, I'll call back to Erin and I'll say, hey, Erin, can I get in touch with medical control doctor so-and-so? And I'm going to give them an update and we'll chat about what's going on here. And that way they can weigh in on any you know additional decision making or they can simply say, that sounds wonderful. I'm going to let the team back here know what's going on and we'll see you in an hour. When you go to pick up a patient, what is it like when you first get there? It's usually either a mix of chaos or everyone has evaporated. <laughs> yeah. um, so either there's a bunch of people or there's absolutely no one around. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's one or the other. There's never any in between. <laughs> there's often a lot of commentary. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Everyone's really very relieved. Especially for places that do not have pediatrics within. They don't have a pediatrician in-house or, you know, and certainly they don't have a pediatric intensivist for most of these community hospitals or a pediatric emergency physician or even nurses that are terribly comfortable with pediatrics. It's the same way I look at the adult patient with fear and trepidation. They look at that, pedi that pediatric patient in the same way. That must be such a great feeling to know you can just come in and take over and help this patient and family. I just can't imagine what that feels like as far as job satisfaction for you too. It really is so nice. And sometimes you get that satisfaction right away. The family, you know, will say, oh, you know, we're so glad when you got here. We, you know, we could see that you were getting right to action and you were doing all of the things that needed to be done. And we're so happy and we see that. Sometimes they tell you on the ride back that, oh, I'm so glad you were here, that sort of thing. Sometimes we get a letter afterwards. Um, they've mailed in a letters. We have a whole bulletin board in our office of letters that family members have sent in. We keep those with pictures and cards, et cetera. And sometimes we hear it just from word of mouth. We go to, to check up on that patient and the nurse who's caring for that patient at the bedside said, oh, Dad told me all about your trip and how great you guys were or how all of that went and, and how great it is. And Erin, I suspect you probably hear some in the communication center too, some feedback that come come through. And Yes, definitely. So there's referring physicians who call in there, we need your team. <laughs> and they know that they're in a spot where they just, they need our transport team and we do our best to get them out there. I was always been curious about how many calls you get. Do you know what the numbers are for the number of transports? Um, so last year we did over a thousand transports, I believe, right, Sarah? Where did we end as far as um, numbers for last year? 
Yeah, I think we're over 1,200, I think. So we're the numbers have just gone up and up and continue to go up. Uh, hence the reason for us trying to grow grow the entire team. EMT is comp center specialists and nurses. But Erin, yeah, I have to give you all credit in the communications center because sometimes they answer, what, 800 phone calls a day? One yeah. Over a thousand. I was going to say, I've had shifts in there um, where I was told after my shift that I answered over a thousand phone calls in my 12 hours. But luckily with our new staffing, with adding more communication center specialists, you're never alone in there. We have some additional help. Um, so there's at least two people in the comm center at all times just to help offload some of that volume uh, that's coming in. So, Wow. So just to manage the phone calls is crazy. What do you do yes. with you, if you're supposed to or if you want to go out on too many calls and there's not enough of you to go around? What do you do? If we have more than one call that comes in at the same time, we triage those calls and decide which child is more acutely in need of our transport team. And if the other child is stable and can wait for our transport team to finish the call, then we will give them we'll give the referring physicians an ETA of when we will be complete with the original call. If they are unable to wait, we will reach out to Boston MedFlight or other transport teams in the area to try to get the child to our hospital quickly if they can't wait for us. That's crazy. Like these these numbers, and I never knew that you guys answered so many calls. So if a nurse shows up to work their 12-hour shift, how many calls can you expect to go out on in your 12 hours? I would say these days you can expect to go on two to three is pretty standard. Every now and then you can sneak a fourth in, but you have to sort of remain local all day to be able to do that. It just takes time to get anywhere you need to go. Getting out of the city of Boston sometimes can take, you know, double the amount of time you would expect it to when it's five o'clock on a Friday and everybody's trying to leave the city. So typically I would say two to three calls with often more requests than just those two to three per shift. Again, that's where that triaging comes into play. We do have some shifts per week where we're able to staff a second team. So that's the other thing that we'll try to do is if we can staff a second team, that way we have better coverage for if multiple people need us. But I would say we're usually getting more than just those two to three requests per shift. And Erin, you would certainly know. Yes, absolutely. We're definitely getting more than two to three requests per shift. I'm not exactly sure on the percentages, but I would say that maybe three additional calls where we have to reach out for assistance from Boston MedFlight or other critical care transport in the area to get children to us. So there's definitely going to be a need for that second team that we're looking to staff and put up. So to go back to the ambulance, how do you maintain quality control of the equipment on there when there's so much movement? Ah. So we, every morning, the staff that comes in for the day shift does a thorough evaluation of all of the equipment for the day. So we go through our equipment bags, we go through the stretchers, we go through the isolettes, we go through everything. And that's usually where the nurses focus. We go through all the medications, we make sure everything is intact. Because sometimes we do, we have glass vials in there, right? So they're all contained and sort of protected. So we do go through all of that. Our EMTs will go through the physical truck itself doing, you know, like mechanical truck look at, you know, checkouts and, and look at all of those things. And then they also look at all of the other equipment that ho that's housed within the ambulance itself. So we do a lot of our own maintenance there. We actually, we check our own expiration dates for medications. 
on various, you know, various time frames based on the medications, et cetera. We check all of our equipment periodically for expiration dates. We have all these checklists lined up. So we're really a very self-contained group. How much does it cost to fill that tank? <laughs> <laughs> These days, it's pretty pricey. It's a 50-gallon tank, I believe, on our ambulance. So It must take you forever to do it, too. It does. Occasionally, you'll find a truck stop with the quick fill, and it, it goes pretty fast. But other than that, you're, you're going to be there for a couple minutes. <laughs> do you ever get any downtime? We do. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's few and far between, and it's sort of hit or miss. There are some days that are just a little quieter and other days where... You know, you're eating on the run just consistently all day. So you never can quite tell. And with downtime, there's always something else going on, right? So we're always easily able to fill that time. So we do quality improvement projects, QA, QI, all of that sort of thing. And then everybody has various projects on the team that we're all working on. And then in addition to that, we actually will back up the IV team. So if the IV team is really backed up, we'll get phone calls to come help them out, put IVs in. Occasionally, we'll be asked to escort patients who are intubated to MRI or CT. And that way, one addition, you know, one staff member can be left in a very busy unit and we can, we can help take that place. We respond to ICU stats, all the code blues, uh, all of the maths. So we do get all the pages for those as well. So there are always a lot of things going on. And then we can also... All the nurses can run up and help Erin answer the 1,000 phone call that she's taking. <laughs> I know you guys also come down to the ER, you know, when a trauma comes in or if we have a tough IV or if it's a really busy night. Like you said, you're jack of all trades, right? You do everything. It's amazing. It's you everywhere. Around too and help out. You know, is anything going on up here? How are you guys doing? As Erin said, we love to follow up on our patients. So, you know, not only do we follow through the chart and follow up on, you know, labs and uh, and trajectory and all that stuff. We like to go to the bedside. So we like to go to the bedside, check in with the families. If they're not there, we have these little cards that we can leave them. So we know, you know, they know that we came by and it's just nice to see them. And hopefully we're seeing them like on the way out the door and they're going to go back to, you know, being well. And I feel like I've seen you guys do some community work too, like going out to show kids the ambulance and things like that. How does that, how do you factor that in? One of our uh, nurses is really great about trying to solicit PR events because people love to, you know, the touch a truck and all that sort of thing. So not only do we do um, a lot of those events, we basically just get requests, you know, can can you come out and do this or can you come join us at this fair, et cetera. But we'll also get a lot of requests from community hospitals asking us to do case reviews so we can do some education for case reviews, especially for those places, like I said, that don't have pediatrics in-house. So we will actually go sort of COVID uh, precautions, uh, depending. We may go there or we may host a Zoom where we can actually do a, a case review with them and, and do some presentations. We have our own transport team conference coming up March 11th of this year. So we do them annually. And I believe we're at our eighth annual transport team conference where we put on a full day conference with a variety of topics and, and sort of spread the wealth and share the wealth. But we do like to participate in a lot of PR events as well. I know there's always a great turnout for that, which is great. I'm wondering, could you describe to us your best day on the transport team? Erin, what do you think? <laughs> Every day that I get to work on the team is a good day because I know I'm making a difference and I know that I'm going to have a good experience going into work. So it's hard to pinpoint my best one. 
Yeah, I agree. I think I think there have been so many days where you just leave work on on a little bit of a high thinking I really made a difference today. You know, I can think of cases where newborns are born and, and they sort of appear one way and everybody's sort of marching down one pathway. And then you get there and you say, hey, let's stop and think for a minute. And then you say, hey, actually, I think we should probably think about some of these other things. And then it turns out to be some of these other things, and you've completely changed the the plan of care. And you know you've got that that patient now on the right track, and you're stabilizing them. And those are really good days. And those are you know fewer and far between where you know you're going in and you're actually making a really great diagnosis. But every day is just great. The the families are so great. The the kids are so great. I mean, every day we're we're doing something that I think makes a difference. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that it takes a special person to be a part of the transport team. If someone is thinking about joining your team, what advice do you have for them? Ooh, I would say get your experience. So get some critical care experience. That under your belt will really help you ease into, definitely ease into this position. And I think know what you're walking into as well. So do a little bit of research of, of what transport is like, because again, it's not something that's advertised incredibly well. So you know, to know what you're what you're actually getting into. We work by ground, we work by flight, we, you know, do three calls a day. We take care of very little tiny, tiny, tiny babies. So if teeny tiny babies frighten you, <laughs> uh, we definitely see very premature babies all the way up through through adolescence. Being able to really function autonomously is key. So if you think you're somebody that can function really autonomously, make decisions, make decisions confidently speak up for safety, clarify concerns, do all of those things that, you know, we learn about in all of our training without hesitation, then then this is the job for you. So I think, you know, figuring out how to do all of those things will will definitely get you um, a, a step ahead. Is there an EMT program that you would recommend for folks that are interested in joining? Not necessarily a program that I would recommend, but um, if you are interested in the transport team, um, some suggestions that I would make is getting your three to four years of experience, especially in a 911 environment. It just gives you the right sort of headspace to be able to handle the scenes that we walk into on a regular basis. And also in the 911 field, usually somewhere like one to less than 1% of your calls are going to be pediatric patients. Um, So it's not usually a population that a lot of EMTs and paramedics are super comfortable with. So take the time to learn the normals of pediatrics and really invest in knowing more about pediatrics than you would. And then in working in the comm center, take the time to learn common diagnoses for pediatrics because you're going to be answering phone calls of physicians calling in with a patient who has something you've never heard of before. (laughs) And you kind of need to know what that is so you can get them connected to the right person. Um, So just having that background of medical verbiage knowledge is, is helpful as well. Do you ever let folks shadow you guys if they're interested just to kind of see what it's like? Or is it too crowded on the truck? Yeah, so we used to have a really great ride-along program, so where folks come in and could ride along with us. And I think now just given all of the the COVID issues that we've everybody has sort of faced, I think that's kind of gone by the wayside. When folks come in and want to apply for a job, they do usually ride along with us. And I think that gives them a great glimpse at what we do for those, you know, hours that they're there with us. So they can definitely come along and do that. And I always let the nursing instructors know. We always have uh, students come on down and, and bring your students down to see the ambulance and let us chat about it a little bit. Because, again, it's sort of a little hidden gem in the nursing world. 
And we're so happy to share our experience and show the teeny tiny blood pressure cuffs that would, you know, fit on a pinky. We love to, to show the students that and let them know about what we do. If each of you could think about two things that you want our listeners to know, either about the work that you do, the work that the transport team does, or, you know, anything in general that you want people to take home from this podcast. First of all, we are hiring. We're hiring to the best job that you can that you can uh, do if you, if you ask me. So consider us, think about it. We are hiring for all positions, nurses, EMTs, paramedics, as well as communication center specialists. I think don't underestimate the difference that you, that you can make as a nurse because sometimes you think it's just, you know, we just picked up a, another little baby with RSV and we just went through our general motions and we sort of do what we do. And then we get that letter about how thankful that family was that we just stopped for a minute to just explain everything. We just sort of paused because it's our comfort zone to take care of these kids. So while, you know, folks that only take care of adults are like operating on crisis mode, we can just take that moment and say, you know, let's just talk about this for a minute. Let me explain what's going on with your child. And sometimes I think we take that for granted that it was just another call, just another day. But we really do get to make such a difference. And it re- it's such a privilege to, you know, have some impact on these family lives, these kids' lives, and and hopefully in some cases actually save somebody's life as well or improve their prognosis. And I just had a thought, too. When you're on the truck or when you're working with a family, for families who don't speak English as their primary language, what do you do for interpreter services, especially when you're moving so quickly and when you're on the truck? Yeah, so we will get interpreter services at the referring hospital before we leave to explain everything. So we'll get we'll do an informed consent while we are still there with interpreter services there. And it's the same for all of the medical care too. If we really think we're going to have to be doing any big procedures, we'll do them before we get on the road so that when we're actually in the mobile environment and moving, we're not doing any procedures that, you know, were unforeseen or or that sort of thing. We really want to get them all done in the stable environment where there's multiple resources around and unlimited oxygen supply and that sort of thing. So we really will do all of that as best we can. And then if we ever did need to update a family member or if something had changed en route, we could call through our communication center and have them get an interpreter on the phone and then we could use our phones. All of us operate using cell phones when we're on transport. That's how we communicate back and forth. So I could call Erin and ask for an interpreter and she could get them and then we could use the phone if we needed to. That's an incredible amount of resources that are available to you while you're on the road. That's fantastic. I have a question about self-care. Yeah, as much as you love your job, there are still some cases that that you're going to get that might be a little bit challenging. How do you deal with that and what do you do for self-care? So we actually have it written into our policies. We have a number of incidents, cases, you know, issues that may may come up and they they warrant an automatic sort of timeout. Everyone takes a break. You don't go on another call until there's been a debriefing. So we debrief every call, but most of the time it's Yep, we understood what was going on with the medicine. I felt like we communicated well, everything went great, and then we sort of move along. But for, you know, a certain number of cases, we do a true official debriefing where actually we'll call leadership in and make sure everybody is sort of on the same page. It, you know, every now and then someone can't go back out on another call after that. They may need to to go home for the day, in which case it's no questions asked, non-punitive sort of checkout for them for the day. And we have, I think, because we're such a small team, and Erin, you can speak to this as well, 
we all check in on one another. So I've gotten many a text that said, hey, I know you had a bad call the other day. How you doing? And that can be from a, a colleague, you know, somebody in management, any, you know, any of our leadership just to say, hey, how you doing to check in. So we have a I think we have a lot of processes for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, we are a small team and it makes us pretty close. So anytime we know somebody may have had a rough shift, we definitely do our best to take care of each other and check in on each other and just make sure that everybody's in a good spot. What's about work-life balance? Like if your family's expecting you home for dinner and you say, I have to go to Brunswick, how does your family deal with that? They just have to be flexible. So fortunately, I come from, you know, family members that are also in medicine. So, you know, they understand when, when somebody needs you, they just need you and you, and you have to go and, and that's sort of that. We are very careful about safety, though. So, you know, if, if we're getting out late, we're not turning around and coming back the next morning, you know, for, for 6.30 a.m., you know, for safety, for our accreditation, et cetera. We ensure that everybody has 10 hours off between shifts, no questions asked, to ensure that everybody can get home, get the rest they need if they are truly back the next day. But going into this job, too, yeah, you have to, you know, understand that you uh, you sort of wait for that pager to go off. Nothing's scheduled, nothing's planned. So that's part of the excitement, but can also be a piece that, you know, on a day here or there, you say, all right, well, guess I'm going to get out late today. But who knows what will happen, right? The rule is you can't make plans after shift. That's if you right. have plans after shift, you're not getting out until at least 8 p.m. <laughs> it's Murphy's Law. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right? Erin, I don't think you answered the question about, what was the question that you asked? Uh, I thought I was. Give us a couple of pointers you want our listeners to know from your. Oh, Sure. If there are any EMTs listening that are interested in the job, I just think it's important that they know that there is an opportunity for EMTs to elevate their care without receiving additional credentials. So you can work in critical care, you can have an EMS job that is rewarding, and you do feel good about going to um, without having to get additional training. And this is a great job for someone who wishes to stay in EMS and have a career out of it. It's definitely worth investing your time into. And it's a fantastic job. That's so helpful. I do a lot of STEM teaching. And I think a lot of kids that want to work in healthcare, they don't know about these options that are out there. So I love having a little bit more in my, my pocket to showcase. So thank you. And I think it just shows the opportunities that are available to us, especially here at Children's. There's so much to do. And this is why we try to meet with you guys and talk about your work so that people are aware of what's happening at Children's Hospital and what opportunities are available. But the work that you guys do is simply amazing. We really need to showcase it more and help you guys do that. That would be amazing. And thank you. Thank you for this. This is a this is a great forum to meet little pockets of, of folks within the hospital because there are so many departments and programs that we need to know more about. We can use them as resources, right? We have all of these resources at our fingertips that we may or may not know about. Right. And Sarah, I think you're a wonderful example. Just thinking back of your days as a new grad when you were in the ER with us and look at you now. <laughs> I never would have thought I would have been here, right? Who knew? You know, that training prepared me too for this. It really did. And Erin, I loved hearing your story and about how you ended up at Children's and the work that you do and how inspiring you are because of the love of the job. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having us. This was great. This was exciting. This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.